When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Hi, this is Scott. If you're a fan of the ancient world, please help us get the word out. Like us on Facebook, follow us on Twitter, and rate the series on iTunes. Thanks again for listening. Hi, I'm Scott Chesworth, and welcome to The Ancient World Rediscovery. Episode R7, The Man Who Sold Troy. The fleet anchored in Bessica Bay, shielded by a range of hills from the gaze of ancient Troy. During the Aegean crossing, the soldiers had prepared themselves for the war to come. Knowing the strength of their enemy, their rulers had forged an unheard-of alliance as their best hope for success. The year was 1853 A.D., over 3,000 years since the fall of Troy. The fearsome enemy was the Russian Empire, and the alliance of convenience were the great European powers of England and France, acting in support of Ottoman Turkey. The ensuing conflict would rage for the next two and a half years along a number of fronts, but would come to be named after a critical and highly contested Black Sea Peninsula named Crimea. The causes and conduct of the war are too complicated to go into here. Suffice to say that the main thrust was denying Russian claims to any choice cuts of the decaying Ottoman Empire. For now, we need to narrow our focus to a British military hospital near the Turkish town of Erenkoy in the winter of 1855. The hospital had been built under the supervision of a London railway engineer named John Brunton. As it neared completion, the war office informed Brunton that peace was about to break out with Russia, and construction should be immediately halted. Faced with the unenviable prospect of managing 150 idle soldiers, Brunton was struck by a flash of inspiration. He'd move their camp to the nearby plains of Troy and perform a few excavations of any sites that caught his interest. One site Brunton investigated was a mound called Hisarlik. The mound was thought to be the location of a classical city built by the Greeks and Romans near the original site of Bronze Age Troy. Even though Troy was widely considered to be a poetic fiction, Greek and Roman ruins held their own interest. 
Among other finds, Brunton's men excavated a classical temple, holding a massive Corinthian column weighing over three tons. Brunton and his unit were soon recalled to their duties and performed no further excavations at Hisarlik. As a result, the incident is only remarkable in one respect. It's the first documented archaeology conducted at the site that would soon be revealed as the home of ancient Troy. The first and last time I mentioned Troy was way back in episode 7. Tablets recovered from the Hittite capital of Hattusas contain several references to the Anatolian city-state of Willusa. In 1250 BC, the city's mentioned as a source of contention between the Hittite king Hattusili III and the mysterious king of Ahiawa, believed to be a Mycenaean Greek ruler exerting power over western Anatolia. Five centuries after Troy's fall, a multi-generational game of telephone had morphed the city's name from Willusa to Wilios to Ilios and, finally, to Ilion, the city memorialized by Homer in his Iliad. Through a similar process, the Hittite name for the region of northwestern Turkey surrounding Willusa, Tarawisa, also changed over time to Homer's Troas or Troad. As a resident of the Ionian Greek city of Smyrna, Homer certainly knew the ruins of Troy and the geography of the Troad in general, like the back of his hand. The confusion only started a few centuries later, when Greek settlers founded a colony in the Troad named Ilion. The problem was it was never clearly stated whether the colony was built atop ancient Troy or just nearby, in homage to the fallen city. The latter wasn't so unusual. Classical Sparta, for instance, was built over a mile from its own Bronze Age ruins. Alexander the Great clearly thought Ilion was Troy and sacrificed at its temple to Trojan Athena before completing his conquest of Persia. In his wake, other Greek and Roman notables also visited the site, including both Pompey the Great and Julius Caesar. Around 15 BC, under Caesar Augustus, Ilion was restored and expanded in honor of the links between Rome and Troy, highlighted in Virgil's Aeneid. Supposedly, even Constantine the Great considered founding his new capital on the site, now known as Ilium Novum, before finally choosing Byzantium. Over a thousand years later, fresh from his conquest of Constantinople, the Ottoman Sultan Mehmet II also visited the site, and paid tribute at the nearby tombs of Achilles, Hector, and Ajax. Most classical authors, including Herodotus, Xenophon, Arian, and Plutarch, believed that ancient Troy lay beneath Greco-Roman Ilion. But then one of them just had to go out of his way to muddy the waters. Strabo was an Ionian Greek born in Pontus, on the southern coast of the Black Sea, around 64 BC. His main claim to fame is writing the book on geography. Seriously, he wrote a book called Geography. 
In it, he quoted a 2nd century BC geographer named Demetrius of Skepsis, who claimed that Homer's Troy was not, repeat not, at Ilion, but, quote, some thirty stades higher up to the east, on a low ridge between the Scamander and Thimbrius rivers. Which might be okay if stades were inches or feet, but no, he's talking around three miles, which is just going to screw everyone up. Demetrius's main reason for writing this appears to have been civic jealousy over Ilion's fame. And the current historical consensus is that Strabo quoted him mainly to annoy me. As with many topics in this series, their things sat until the Enlightenment. Of the series of European travelers who visited the Troad, one of the most influential was Jean-Baptiste Chevalier. In the 1780s, Chevalier was commissioned by the French ambassador to produce a detailed map of the region. In the course of his work, Chevalier became convinced that ancient Troy lay near the modern village of Penarbasi, on a bluff named Balidog. The bluff was situated nine miles from the Hellespont, overlooking the Menderis River, known in Homeric times as the Scamander, and local springs were thought to be those mentioned in the Iliad. The main problem was, in order to make Penarbasi fit other aspects of Homer's description, the local geography had to be pretty severely tweaked. Another surveyor employed by the French ambassador, named Franz Koffer, came across ancient remains at another elevated site called Hisarlik, a mile and a half north of the Menderis River. In 1801, an English traveler named Edward Daniel Clark used coins and inscriptions to link Hisarlik with Greco-Roman Ilion. Of course, thanks to Strabo, that didn't necessarily connect it to Homer's Troy, and Penarbasi continued to be the favored location for the ancient city's remains. And again, that was with the big if that Troy had actually existed in the first place. In 1847, 2,000 acres of farmland, including the eastern half of the Hisarlik Mound, were purchased by the British consul Frederick Calvert. Calvert was the most prominent member of an extended English clan who made their home in the Dardanelles. He'd inherited his post as British consul from his maternal uncle Charles Lander. Over the next few decades, Calvert and his two younger brothers would serve as consuls and vice-consuls for a number of foreign nations, often several at the same time. Upon assuming the consulship, Calvert purchased parcels of land on both sides of the strait. In fact, the land where Brunton would later construct the British military hospital was donated by Calvert from his Arencoy estate. Frederick Calvert was intelligent, outgoing, fluent in several languages, and a gracious host to the various royals and other notables who often passed through the region. But for those visitors with an Iliad-based itinerary, Frederick quickly passed them to the most knowledgeable expert he knew, his youngest brother, Frank. 
having arrived in Turkey in 1845, at the age of 16, Frank Calvert quickly fell in love with his adopted land. Traveling through the countryside, he was keenly aware of inhabiting the same landscape where Homer's mythic heroes had walked and fought and died. Over the span of a few years, Frank Calvert acquired an unparalleled understanding of the geography and topography of the Troad, and was more than happy to share his knowledge with anyone interested. In 1847, the Calverts hosted Charles McLaren, a renowned Scottish journalist and outspoken believer in the historicity of Troy. It was likely McLaren's enthusiasm and conviction that first prompted Frank Calvert to begin investigating several local sites. Fortunately, many were situated on land already owned by his family. Over the next six years, more as a hobby than part of any focused program, Frank Calvert performed excavations at a number of ancient grave mounds known as tumuli. In 1853, the Calverts welcomed another distinguished visitor. Charles Newton had recently left a position in the Department of Antiquities at the British Museum to become vice-consul at Mytilene. Frank Calvert took Newton on a tour of the Troad, visiting Panarbasi, Hisarlik, and other ancient sites, and even performing a few small-scale digs. It was later remarked by Newton and others that Calvert always used the greatest care and latest techniques when performing his excavations, which were always documented in meticulous detail. Later that year, Calvert was rewarded with his first genuine archaeological coup, unearthing the Acropolis, harbor, and graveyard of the classical Greek city of Ophrynion. 1853 also saw the outbreak of the Crimean War, which meant that, for the next two and a half years, the Calvert brothers were fully occupied with their consular duties. Archaeological side trips were also discouraged by the danger from mutinous soldiers and bandits roaming the countryside. It was only after the war's end, in 1856, that Frank Calvert was finally able to resume his investigations. First, he published the results of an earlier dig at Pinarbasi, where he'd found no pottery or masonry older than around 500 BC. Along with its improbable sighting, these results should have ruled out Pinarbasi as a contender for ancient Troy. But, for some reason, most experts, including Calvert himself, continued to consider the site the front-runner. Over the next several years, Frank Calvert spent much of his time performing digs at classical sites, then publishing his findings in a number of scholarly journals. One useful technique he adopted was using inscribed coins to identify sites, then using pottery to determine their age. During this same period, Calvert also excavated a tumulus at Hane Tepe, and established that it was a funerary mound dating from the Bronze Age. He was, in other words, starting to close in on Homer. By 1863, Calvert had shifted his allegiance to the side of Hisarlik. 
Brunton's initial finds, the general topography, the orientation of the rivers, the distance from the coast, all these factors pointed to Hisarlik as the site of ancient Troy. Plus, the Scottish journalist McLaren had just published a book called The Plain of Troy Described, in which he thoroughly debunked both Strabo and Demetrius and convincingly linked ancient Troy with Greco-Roman Ilion. Frank Calvert was poised to make a once-in-a-lifetime discovery. He was a seasoned archaeologist with 16 years of experience under his belt, who now knew both how and where to dig. Even better, his sarlik was partly located on his own land. Which is why, when we think of Troy today, the first name that comes to mind is Heinrich Schliemann. Wait, what? Okay, as it turns out, by 1863, things were no longer so rosy for the Calvert clan. Frank's oldest brother, the British consul Frederick, had become entangled in a series of questionable financial dealings both during and after the Crimean War that did serious damage to the family's reputation. While likely innocent of the most serious charges, the timing, the political situation, and other factors combined to make Frederick a useful scapegoat. Unfortunately, Frank's archaeological career was caught in the blast radius of Frederick's very public implosion. Hisarlik was a large site. A serious excavation meant serious money, which usually meant institutional patronage. Frank Calvert's main hope in this regard had been Charles Newton, the former British Museum official and vice-consul at Mytilene. Over the past decade, along with additional consular postings in Rhodes and Rome, Newton had gained enormous fame from his rediscovery of the Mausoleum of Halicarnassus, one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. Recently, he'd returned to the British Museum to head up their department of Greek and Roman antiquities. Calvert had done his best to maintain a relationship with Newton, and wrote him about his plan to excavate at Hisarlik. Aware of his compromised position, Calvert made Newton a generous offer. If the British Museum would fund the dig, all objects found would be the museum's property. All Calvert really wanted was the opportunity to rehabilitate his family's name and, most importantly, to have his own name associated with the rediscovery of ancient Troy. While Newton offered guarded support for the initiative, he was overruled by his superiors. Their eventual rejection letter will sound pretty familiar to anyone who's ever been on a job hunt. The trustees decline entertaining the prospect of digging at Ilium Novum at present, but are obliged to you for making them the offer. Frank Calvert was, understandably, shattered. After trying and failing to purchase the western half of the mound the following year, Calvert decided to continue investigating his Sarlik at his own pace. The wind had clearly gone out of his sails, but 
on the flip side, he still owned part of the land and was the only person excavating it, so what was the big hurry? In 1865, after digging down around 12 feet and unearthing only Greco-Roman remains, Calvert apparently gave up excavating the site altogether. Enter Heinrich Schliemann. At the time of their first meeting, in 1868, Schliemann could best be described as a wealthy retiree with a passion for both ancient history and travel. Schliemann grew up in humble circumstances, having lost his mother at an early age and gone to live with his uncle after his father was forced to resign as a Lutheran pastor. Completing his studies at a German trade school, Schliemann found work as a grocer's apprentice, then a cabin boy. But he soon took it upon himself to improve his handwriting and language skills in order to further his career. Over time, Schliemann would learn over a dozen languages, including ancient Greek, and become adept at picking up new ones quickly. He also developed an interesting habit of writing his journals using the language of whatever country he was staying in. Ambitious and driven, Schliemann went on to make his fortune as a banker during the California Gold Rush, a Russian arms dealer during the Crimean War, and a cotton speculator during the American Civil War. Retiring in 1864, at the age of 42, Schliemann embarked on an ambitious world tour that included North Africa, China, and Southeast Asia. In a previous grand tour taken in 1858, Schliemann had also visited Italy, Syria, Greece, and the Levant. In 1868, after studying at the Sorbonne and attending the meetings of several French archaeological societies, Schliemann made plans for a third grand tour. This time, his itinerary included Italy, Greece, Ottoman Turkey, and Russia. The Russia stop was partly to visit Ekaterina, his Russian wife of 16 years, and their three young children. Ekaterina didn't share Schliemann's passions for history and travel, and, as a result, he saw his family only infrequently. In June 1868, Schliemann visited the ongoing excavations at Pompeii, under direction of the pioneering Italian archaeologist Giuseppe Fiorelli. While he was impressed with Fiorelli's approach, he thought the pace unbearably slow. The following month in Ithaca, Schliemann decided to try his own hand at some archaeology, the first recorded time he did so. The location he chose was the summit of Mount Athos, rumored to hold the palace of the legendary King Odysseus. After finding only a few urns, some walls, and a small building, Schliemann decided to move on to the Troad. It was here that Heinrich Schliemann first met the foremost authority on the local Homeric geography, Frank Calvert. And it was sometime during their conversations that Calvert first let slip his firm conviction that the ruins of ancient Troy lie waiting untouched beneath his sarlic. 
As both a canny businessman and history aficionado, Schliemann must have instantly recognized the potential for both money and fame. Before leaving Turkey, he informed his sister of his plans. I intend to lay bare the entire hill of Hisarlik, for I consider it certain that I will find there Pergamos, the citadel of Troy. Returning to Paris, Schliemann began a rapid-fire correspondence with Calvert, asking detailed questions about the site, confirming his desire to excavate, and requesting Calvert's aid with the local logistics. Gratified by his interest, Calvert promised Schliemann full access to his lands and help with getting the required excavation permits. He also offered assistance in convincing Calvert's Turkish neighbors to let Schliemann access the western half of the mound. To top it off, Calvert proposed a scheme to split any fines with Schliemann 50-50. Inconveniently, the Ottoman Empire had chosen that particular moment to finally start paying attention to its cultural heritage. The Imperial Ottoman Museum had just opened in Istanbul, and the effort to fill it with items of interest quickly put the kibosh on taking any fines out of the country. While Calvert worked the system to obtain permission to dig, Schliemann decided to write a book on his excavations at both Ithaca and Hisarlik. Again, this was 1868. Schliemann's letters to Calvert showed that he barely remembered visiting Hisarlik, and he'd certainly never excavated there. But Calvert had, and Schliemann seemed to have little problem mingling Calvert's efforts with his own. When the book was published, Calvert did get prominent mention, and even wrote Schliemann a letter expressing his gratitude. But Calvert must have also noticed that his main role— of pointing Schliemann toward Hisarlik and bringing him up to speed on contemporary scholarship had been totally ignored. Still, there was no reason to make a fuss. I mean, they were still partners, and until they actually started digging, it was all just guesswork anyway. Along with the book launch, 1869 was a year of frenetic activity for Schliemann. In an effort to burnish his academic credentials, he leveraged the book to obtain a Ph.D. from the University of Rostock. He then returned to the U.S. to secure citizenship, divorced his Russian wife, then found and married a new wife half his age, Sophia Engostromanos. No judgments, just saying. By the end of the year, only one element was still missing from Schliemann's plan the permission to dig at Hisarlik. And here, for me, is where the story really goes off the rails. In April 1870, Schliemann returned to Hisarlik and immediately started digging in the western half of the mound. Did he get permission from the Turkish government? Uh, no. Did he get permission from the Turkish landowners? Uh, no. Did he give Frank Calvert any heads up that he wasn't going to dig on his half of the mound? Uh, no. Basically, it was at least three kinds of messed up, and Schliemann's explanation was downright embarrassing. Knowing in advance that the Turkish owners would refuse to give me permission, 
I did not ask them. Schliemann's rationale was that the western half of the mound was higher than Calvert's eastern half, and therefore more likely to contain the Trojan citadel. Within days, his work crew had exposed several walls and buildings. But the first big discovery came a few weeks later. In mid-April, Schliemann announced to a German newspaper that he'd located the Palace of Priam, legendary king of Troy. The truth was a bit more complicated. Schliemann had unearthed a Megaron-style hall and an ancient fortification wall, both of which dated from the Late Bronze Age, so it was an important discovery. But the leap to identifying the building as Priam's palace was a bit much. Schliemann did want his finds verified, so he went to the most qualified local expert, Frank Calvert. But for some reason, Calvert wanted nothing more to do with him. Man, I guess some people are just touchy when you totally ignore an agreement you've made with them and decide to perform an illegal dig on a site they pointed you to. Or, I don't know, something. Soon after his initial dig, Schliemann apparently came to terms with the Turkish landowners regarding access to the site. He then left an assistant to keep an eye on things and joined his wife back in Athens. Due to publicity from the German news article, in which Schliemann had bragged about excavating without a permit, the Turkish government, surprise, called a halt to all digs. Then, at the end of the year, the government stepped in and purchased the western half of the mound, ensuring that any future finds would go directly to the Imperial Ottoman Museum. It was at this point that Frank Calvert financially strapped and having given up on the partnership, offered to sell Schliemann the eastern half of his Sarlik. Even though the price was fair and he'd be able to keep any fines, Schliemann refused the offer. Instead, he kept pushing the Turkish government for more access to the western half. Finally, Schliemann was able to leverage his new U.S. citizenship— in particular, the pressure of the American charged affair, John P. Brown, to get the access he wanted. Returning to Hisarlik in October 1871, Schliemann made his intentions clear. This time, he wrote, he would take away the whole hill. Next episode, Schliemann steamrolls through Hisarlik on his quest to find Troy, only to learn that he may have passed it on the way down. Then, the Schliemann Express takes it on the road to Mycenae, where we learn, yet again, that excavation permits are for other people. But don't worry. By the end of all this, we will finally get some closure on Troy. Really, I promise. Next time on The Ancient World Rediscovery.